and we've subtitled it A Journey with Jesus to the Cross because this is, a, this is a season that helps us prepare for Easter in much the same way that Advent helps us prepare for Christmas. But I want to say something about this, this, this phrase, you know, journeying with Jesus to the cross. That the truth is, in as much as we are saying we're journeying with Jesus to the cross, it's really God who journeyed with us first. That the incarnation, Jesus, his life on earth is about God journeying with us. And I think it's important to say that lest we think we're doing God some sort of favor and say, Jesus, I'm going to journey with you to the cross. Really, what happens to us along the way is we begin to realize, wait a minute, Jesus, you really walked this way. Jesus, you really felt this pain. Jesus, you really know this sorrow. In the attempt to journey with Jesus to the cross, we discover that it is God who has come to walk with you in the midst of your sorrow, in the midst of your pain, in the midst of your questions. Sometimes a church like ours can get um, accused of being a happy church, you know, because we like to sing and clap and raise our hands and we laugh and we have joy time every week. And so it's easy to sort of get the impression that the Christian life is all about victory and triumph and happiness and joy, and that if that is not your experience, well, then there must be something wrong with you, because all these people can't have it wrong. The goal of a series like this one is to be able to give voice to our grief and know that we are on solid Christian ground in doing so. That to give voice to your pain is not to abandon faith. In fact, later in one of the weeks in the series, we'll talk about how lament is in itself, in a strange way, an an affirmation of faith. We'll get to that in a few weeks. Today, I want us to talk about sadness. I want us to talk about grief. Many times, those who come into church on a Sunday with grief are being asked to rejoice with those who rejoice, and we don't want to be brought down and Today is a day where we say, well, maybe this is the time for the rest of us to say we can weep with those who weep. That it's okay, and I know some of you are are prepping yourself for kind of a a downer of a sermon. (laughs) And you might be thinking, I don't want to feel this way. I feel happy. That's great. But you're part of a large family. And in order to sit at a big family table together, it means being aware of those around us. And so we, part, of, part of the goal of this, we just had a great Sunday school session with my dear friend Bemney who taught us about how to walk with those who are grieving and he'll be teaching again next Sunday at 9 a.m. I highly recommend that Sunday school. But part of the goal here is to help us not just find comfort within our grief but to know how to be there for others when they grieve. So what is sadness? Where does sadness come from? Is it okay? Is it normal? When we feel it, should we try to change that feeling? Should we try to escape it? What is it? I've been reading an interesting book by a couple of sociologists called The Loss of Sadness. And it's an interesting thing because it tackles this notion that they, they argue, this, this is only new to our day or unique to our day, 
This notion that sadness is an aberration of the human experience and that when we feel it, we should try to fix it. And so these sociologists set out to show that from different periods of history, from as early as a baby and across cultures, so regardless of history, regardless of um, age because of baby and regardless of culture, that sadness is a normal response to loss. And they begin to make this case in their different studies and different things that they're, they're citing and they say, listen, sadness in, in, in a very simplistic way is a response to a loss that can take three shapes, one of three shapes, uh, one of these three kinds of losses. It's either a loss of attachments, and what we mean by this when we say a loss of attachments is a loss of relationships, a loss of something that is Um, that has been a connection for you, a relationship, a friendship. Maybe it's a small loss where you once had a friend and they moved away and you have a little bit of sadness because of the loss of that attachment. Maybe it's a sharp, acute sense of loss because a very strong attachment like a spouse was lost because of death or some other situation. And so one of The losses that produces sadness is the loss of attachment. Secondly, they say another version of this is a loss of status. Now this is one we don't normally give voice to, but we feel this. Uh, Let's say, for example, you find yourself in a prolonged period without a job. It can be easy to imagine that you've lost your place in society. You don't know where you fit. You don't know where your status is. And so because of that, there is a loss and a sadness that ensues. Thirdly, they say maybe there's sadness that results from a loss of meaning. Meaning. What do they mean by meaning? What they mean by meaning is the kind of values that we develop for our life, the things that we say, you know what, these are the things that give my life meaning. And when... I lose that, then there is sadness. So on a superficial level that didn't feel so superficial on February 3rd, part of what gave our lives meaning in the bleak, cold winter months was cheering on our Denver Broncos. And some of us, maybe me, might still be in denial about what happened that Sunday night. But that, that loss of what gave our lives meaning for in a small sense produce sadness. Now, of course, there are much more severe instances of this in meaning. Think for a moment of the gap between your aspirations and your achievements. Think for a moment of the goals you wrote down in your 20s and you said, in my 30s, I am going to, and you had these goals and you had these vision sheets and and all of a sudden you wake up one day and you think, there is a gap between my goals and my achievements. And because of that, there's a certain amount of sadness. Listen, some of you are in the room and you understand sadness in an acute sense. You know it in a strong, sharp, stabbing pain. You feel that kind of sadness. Others of you don't, but you feel the more chronic sadness, the dull sadness that comes from little losses or maybe an ongoing situation where a relationship or a friendship that should have been the source of joy, let's say a marriage, ends up being the source of strain. And so then there's a little bit of sadness that comes from that, that you can't seem to shake. I want to say to you this morning that it is part of how God made us. 
that this is not something to sort of shake and to say, why do I feel this way? This is abnormal. In fact, the other day, a couple weeks ago, Holly and I were um, seeing a counselor as part of my ordination process. I have to get a counseling evaluation for our marriage and all of this thing, you know, so wouldn't you all be interested in hearing what she had to say? But um, I'm not going to tell you, but <laughs> actually, I don't even see the report. But but we were talking about this ebb and flow of, of fear and anxiety to feeling good and, and then maybe even sadness and joy. And, and I was asking the counselor, I said, you know, it seems like we have this idea that life should be like this. And I said, is that true? I mean, is this what normal is? Is this? And she looked and she said, no. And this is a woman, you know, in her 60s who's been doing this for a long time. She says, life is like this. That it's going to ebb and flow. And, and if you try to make life flatline, you end up not only robbing yourself of the pain, maybe, or, or numbing yourself from the pain, but you end up robbing yourself of the joy. And that part of being a human made in the image of God, to feel, to love, to hope, is also to fear and to ache and to hurt. And that life goes like this. And so there's a part of, 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 of acknowledging this to say, okay, sadness is a normal part of life, but why then? Why don't we want to give voice to grief? Why do we not want to admit it? Why do I not want to say that I'm sad? Why do I not want to say, why is our default response, how are you? Awesome! Actually, I'm not, but I uh, just, I don't know why, I just said that. There's something amazing about what happens when we begin to give voice to our grief but yet we don't we're so afraid of doing it perhaps because we're afraid of further distancing further alienation from people I have a friend who said if I really told people how I felt nobody would want to be around me I have a friend who's grieving a loss he said, he said I, I can't I have to be careful who I'm really honest with about how I'm feeling because no I don't feel great and if I told everyone that, they would stop asking me to lunch or coffee, you know? And maybe it's this fear of further losses, losses of further friendships, of additional friendships, that keeps us from being honest, that keeps us from saying, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm hurting. And yet, there's something instinctive in us, something as instinctive as a baby crying. I'm serious, and I'm not doing this to single you out, Michelle, really. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not, it's in my notes, it truly is. <laughs> and, and what you're doing, Michelle, is perfect and beautiful and good. It is, it's absolutely right. It's absolutely right. You're an attentive mother and that's beautiful. I mean that. I, I, I mean that. It, you'll see when I post my notes tomorrow that it was in my notes. <laughs> and on cue. Because there is something in us from the moment of birth that when we feel a sense of loss, we cry. We give voice to it. One of the studies that these sociologists cited was of a baby crying when a mother set him down in the crib and walked away. And, and that for many, many parents, if the crying persisted for a little while, the parent would return. And as soon as the parent returned, the baby would stop crying. And then they also studied scenarios where the parent said, you know, maybe they were persuaded by some rigid parenting technique that was 
parent-centered or something like that, and said, we're just going to let them cry because they're just being selfish, because that's what they are at a month old. <laughs> and, and so we're just going to let, and, and they did this thing, and, and finally the baby stopped crying. And then when a parent came back into the room, the baby was non-responsive because they learned that you don't care. Which is why the story, um, I'm I'm blanking out who tells the story in their book about adoption. Russell Moore tells the story about going to the Russian orphanage to adopt his boys and saying the most eerie sound in that orphanage was the sound of silence. Babies who had learned that crying doesn't do any good. And I wonder if we've become a people that have stopped crying because we believe that crying doesn't do any good. And we unintentionally reinforce this to our children. We say, stop crying. Crying's not going to fix anything. And a child instinctively is saying, I'm not saying it's going to fix anything. I just can't stop crying. And so we grow up as adults that says, don't cry, don't grieve, don't show sadness, don't do it, because it's not going to fix anything. But maybe we're wrong. Maybe part of being able to bond with another person is the ability to express the depth of how we feel. It's interesting, one of the other studies, these sociologists, is of a remote tribe in Papua New Guinea that's non-literate, not exposed to any media that is, it's the Kaluli people. And a number of different studies have been done involving the Kaluli people because they're, they're so remote, though one would imagine that's only going to last for so much longer the more studies that are done with them. <laughs> but, sorry. But it was amazing because the question was, is showing sadness a learned behavior? Is it a socialized behavior? And already the study of babies says probably not because look, babies do this instinctively. But then with this tribe, they showed them three different pictures of a man's face. One had the expression of, of, of joy, the other had the expression of surprise, and the other had the expression that we would associate with sadness. Drawn face, narrowed lips, sinking eyes. And the question the, the question of the researchers was, is this something that is unique to kind of a, a Western culture? Is this a learned behavior? And then they told a story of a father losing a son. And they said, which picture looks like the, will look like the father's face? And they all unanimously pointed to the sad expression. Something in us made to show sorrow as a response to loss. As they continued to study this people, they they realized that even though this tribe, this people experienced loss, they were able to mitigate sadness. It didn't didn't take them into the lower place, what maybe a, a social scientist would call abnormal sadness. And they said, what is it that keeps them from experiencing healthy sadness but keeps them away from the troughs of abnormal sadness? What is it that does that? And they discovered two things. One, Strong social connections. Strong social connections. And secondly, collective religious rituals. Things that they did together that turned their focus away from something on this earth that helped them engage their sadness. 
Now, the truth is, all of us, you're probably smiling in, right, right now because you're thinking, wait a minute, we didn't need to learn this from the Kaluli people. We have this whole book in our Bible called the Psalms. Oh, yeah. Two-thirds of these Psalms, roughly, are considered laments, protests, questions, sadness, grief, despair. The whole range of human emotions and human experience is expressed in the Psalms. Throughout the series, we're going to pick different ones of the Psalms and make it our reflection. Walter Brueggemann, the great Old Testament scholar, says, you know what? We could say there are three categories for settings of life and also the settings of the Psalms. And he says these three things. He says there is a secure orientation, an orientation that is secure, one that speaks of well-being. This is the Psalms that you read where it says, yeah, everything is awesome, like the Lego song, you know. <laughs> Living a dream. Okay, anyway. Yeah, parents will know. And it evokes gratitude. But then there are settings in life and psalms to match it that are of disorientation. Seasons of anguish, of hurt, of alienation, of suffering, of death. Disorientation where nothing seems to make sense. Where the equilibrium itself seems lost. It evokes rage, resentment, self-pity, hatred. And then Brueggemann says there are other psalms that are called new orientation where all of a sudden a season of surprise, something breaks in and where everything was off kilter, something breaks in from the outside and fixes it. Every mountain will be brought low, every valley will be lifted up. All of a sudden, all is right, all is level, all is set. And it's this surprising joy that speaks of the gifts of God. Now, if you're looking at this and you're saying, okay, where am I today? Which one am I in? You should also know that Brueggemann says life is not just in one of these settings. It's often in movements between these settings. And now you're like, oh, okay, well, I know where I am. I'm like between one and two. Or maybe some of you are between two and three, but you don't know it yet because three is a surprising gift. I want us this morning to hear a psalm and actually to, to read along with it responsively. Karen's going to come up and... Maybe Evan will make sure that the mic is, is on. And, and let's all stand together. Some of you, you you're used to doing this, but she's going to read a line and then you read back the, this, the, the alternating lines and it'll go back and forth, back and forth and so that we can read this psalm uh, responsively together. No, it's not that. It's in, my, it's in the sermon notes. I suppose we need to make sure we have it. There it is. Okay, wonderful. Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger. Have pity on me, Lord, for I am weak. My spirit shakes with terror. Turn, O Lord, and deliver me. For in death no one remembers you. I grow weary because of my groaning. My eyes are wasted with grief. 
depart from me, all evildoers. The Lord has heard my supplication. All my enemies shall be confounded and quake with fear. You may be seated. So where is Jesus in this? In the midst of giving voice to our grief, is, is that the end? Do we say, okay, well that's it. We give voice to our grief and good. Is that? Or do we also say, where is Jesus? Where is Jesus in the midst of this grief? Our gospel reading was from that story where Jesus comes to see Mary and Martha after Lazarus has died. And we pick it up in verse 32. It says, Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping. Did you underline that in your Bibles? When Jesus saw her weeping. And the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Several commentaries say that the language here for deeply moved and greatly troubled is almost this inarticulate grunt, this that Jesus sees Mary weeping and he's moved. One other article I was reading this week talked about the first stage of suffering being an inarticulate phase. A phase where you haven't yet learned to give voice to it. This is why, and I had a friend in the, mid, in the middle of, of experiencing tremendous grief, right in the moment of their loss, some Christian came up to them and said, what is the Lord teaching you? This is that moment where you can't yet give voice. Phase one of suffering is a silent, often a silent phase, an inarticulate one. And what does Jesus do when he meets Mary and he sees her in this moment? He doesn't say, Mary, Mary, I've got a couple things I want to tell you. You need to cheer up. I mean, he had just spent this time telling Martha, I'm the resurrection and the life. Why, why not do the same with Mary? You know why? Because Mary collapses at his feet and weeps. I want you to know, church, that Jesus meets us where we're at. Martha wanted to talk. Martha's way of processing was saying, no, you know, Jesus, I, know, I mean, I know there's going to be a resurrection at the last day. And Jesus says, yeah, Mar- Martha, Martha, Martha. I am the resurrection and the life. I, 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 I. But Mary comes and she's in a whole different place of grief. Mary comes and collapses at his feet and is weeping. And when Jesus sees her weeping, Jesus goes, no words, no words. Then it goes on, it says, then he said, where have you laid him? And they said, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. most profound 
two words in the New Testament, right? Jesus wept. Sometimes in the cycle of grief, we want to talk. And Jesus says, okay, let's talk. Sometimes we collapse with no words and weep, and Jesus weeps. One of the things we have a hard time saying is that Jesus weeps with us because he actually sees what we see. You know, the first, the first thing you might say from this text is Jesus groans with Mary because he sees Mary. And we could stop there and say, God sees you in your weeping, and that is powerful in itself, but there's something more. They say to him, Lord, come and see. And it's when Jesus sees what they've seen that he weeps. What does this mean for us? I think what it means is that Jesus' sorrow with us is not just commiserating. It's not just saying, oh, you're sad? I'm sad. It's Jesus saying, I see what you see. And that's awful. And that's wrong. And that's sad. I see what you see. And I weep. It's important for us, I think, to recognize that when God comes to earth, he doesn't identify himself with the strong, but with the weak. He comes as the suffering one. He comes as the abused one. He comes as the one who is beaten. He comes as the one who is betrayed. He comes as the one who suffers the loss, not the one who brings loss. Jesus comes as that person. And so in every situation in your life, whether it's the small losses or the big losses, we can know that not only does Jesus see you, but Jesus sees what you see. He sees that grave. He sees that pain. And he weeps. And he weeps. About 10 years ago, a little over 10 years ago, Holly and I, you know, we'd just been married a couple years and didn't have kids yet. And you know, when you're in that phase of life in your young, young 20s, mid-20s, whatever, the world is a wonderful place. <laughs> Nothing could ever go wrong. And so when we got the call that her then 18-year-old cousin had been killed in a car accident just a week after Thanksgiving, we were shocked. And I was young as a pastor, mostly in music. I, I um, didn't know what to say, what to do. And um, I remember sitting in one of the New Life Christmas services, I'll switch over here, and um, it was in between like performances, you know, we were doing like this Christmas Eve thing, and, and for the first time I realized that, that actually <laughs> this season of Advent can be a very sad time, that all around everybody's saying, okay, it's, you know, it's happy, and, but when you're dealing with loss and we were about to fly home to Iowa to be part of the, the service and you just you, you just you don't know what you're going to say and so for me at the time the only thing I could turn to was to try to express something in, in music and so I wrote this song uh, out of it 
sorrow bring your life again guide us as we follow teach us as we pray and give us strength to borrow we'll return in praise light for our tomorrow God who comes to save Jesus hope of heaven for us your life was given healer of our brokenness God who comes to save wrapped in human weakness to our world you came and carrying our sickness suffering our shame dying for our wickedness rising up again victor over darkness God who comes to save Jesus hope of heaven for us your life was given healer of our brokenness God who comes to save wonderful counselor the mighty God prince of peace savior lord It's a powerful thing enough to say that God shares our sorrow, to know that God weeps 
because Jesus shares in our grief, we know that we're not alone. And I think it goes on beyond that. And because Jesus shares in our grief, we know that grief is not the end. And that, I think, is the most beautiful thing about this. See, this whole journey of Lent, we know is where it's headed. It's headed for the cross. And the worst day in all of history was not a natural disaster or some other event, catastrophic event. The worst day in history was when the Son of God died. We know that all of our sorrow, all of this journey of Lent is headed toward that day. But here's what we know. That it didn't end at the cross. That Lent is a journey through sorrow to the cross and finally to resurrection. That Jesus taking on our griefs is not only to weep with us so that we're not alone, but it's to make it so that our sorrow is not the end. It makes it so that this is not the end. So, there is hope. <laughs> there is hope beyond this moment. So, a few years after that, this is, I don't know how many years ago now, Holly would know, I don't know, maybe five, six years ago, maybe not quite that long. Some dear friends of ours were, um, um, they had three boys at the time and were expecting a fourth child and it was a girl and, and many of you know them Aaron and Jossie Stern some of our closest friends we worked at the Mill College Ministry with them and seven months into the pregnancy they got word that something was going wrong and somewhere close to the eighth month um, they had to go to the hospital to deliver a stillborn child and we waited with them in the hospital through the night we're there in the morning and held her in our arms. And talked about the idea of a hope or a gift not being denied but being delayed. And that there is something beyond death. So I write songs when I process. And I wrote this for them in that moment. When my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that's higher. And when my feet are sinking down, lift me up to walk on water. I will be still and know you are my father and my eyes will be fixed on you alone and I put my hope in you there's nothing else to do Through every valley I know you're by my side For my life is in 
your hands Though my bed is filled with tears Still you're here to remind me There is more than what appears Grace from heaven now abounding I will be still and know You are my Father And my eyes will be fixed on you alone I put my hope in you there's nothing else to do through every valley I know you're by my side for my life is in your hands and your love will never fail your mercies are new each day through every circumstance my hope will stand for my life is in your hands I've heard my hope in you. There's nothing else to do. Through every valley I know you're by my side. And my life is in your hands. Your love will never fail your mercies are new each day through every circumstance my hope will stand for my life is in your hands would you stand and just sing that last line for my life is in your hands for my life is in your hands. I put my hope. I put my hope in you. There's nothing else to do. Through every valley I know you're by my side. And my life is in your hands, your love, your love will never fail. Your mercies are new each day. Through every circumstance, my hope will stand. For my life is in your hands and through every circumstance my hope will stand for my life is in your hands through every 
Through every circumstance, my hope will stand, for my life is in your hand. Just right where you are, would you lift your voices up to the Lord? Maybe it helps to raise your hands up kind of as a cry of desperation, or maybe of just weakness, and say, God, we're weak. God, we don't want to trust in our own strength. God, we turn away from our own sin and from our own self-reliance. And Lord, lead us away. And lead us back to you, God. See, the only wrong way, quote-unquote, to handle sadness is to not take it to the Lord. Other than that, I think it all goes. I think you can say it all to him. Lift your heart up to Him. Lift your heart up to Him.